and they're showing up buzzed, picking up their kid at school. But they did all their self-fulfillment activities during the day. Arguably, is that living well? Uh, I'm a Catholic, right? So, so in the in the Catholic literature, we'll talk about kenosis, which is this construct of self-emptying. In my opinion, there's this self-emptying way of doing the seeking where you take self out of the fulfillment. Because if you look at all the self-help constructs of bettering self-fulfillment, what's the common word of them all? Self, 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 self. Well, adding up all these selves you'd think would be an optimized self, I'm saying, no, it's actually what doesn't happen. That's the problem. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig. And I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. I can't hold back my excitement for today's episode as we dive deep into hat number one and four, the soul and the entrepreneur as I interview my guest, Dr. Kevin Fleming. Dr. Fleming is the founder of Gray Matters International, Inc., a game-changing decisional neuroscience-based consultancy, advisory, or technology firm working with CEOs, executives, and other high-performing entrepreneurs on transformational behavioral change solutions not found in the usual path of self-help and consultancy these days. The conversation gets real with the doc, so get your journals out to capture the nuggets of wisdom sprinkled throughout. Let's welcome Dr. Kevin Fleming to the Seven Hats, shall we? Dr. Kevin Fleming, welcome to the Seven Hats. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. You know, I've been a fan for a while and reading your various materials, you mentioned a book by James Hillman entitled We've had 100 years of psychotherapy and the world's getting worse. And I thought that was pretty significant. So tell us about your initial journey into psychotherapy. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, oh, yeah, I'm glad you grabbed that title because James's work is fascinating to me. And I, he's probably one of the only shrinky minds that I'll still hang out with in terms of my you know influences. Um, but yeah, I got into the field, I think, like most people, you know, to help people and what you find that's very interesting as you roll through the training and get into the supervisions and get into the didactics is that it's not that the models of psychotherapy are incomplete uh, are, are wrong they're incomplete they're they're full of half truths you can easily distort and misuse any attempt to help somebody and it became pretty apparent maybe it's because of my own crap and my own ego and such but that I was misusing a lot of it myself where I was almost falling in love with myself while I was helping somebody and it's a very interesting distortion that if you don't catch it, uh, could really lead you in paths that now in gray matters, I'm realizing I'm using that wisdom to help other entrepreneurs and, and, and successful folk get it right. It's a subtle one. It's, it's toxic. And uh, I, I think that the title of Hillman's is very interesting because it plainly is throwing it out there saying, hey, listen, we've been doing this model for decades. 
uh, for almost a, you know a hundred years and plus now. And um, what are we got to show for it? Well, it's not so tragic as it maybe sounds. That's the part. Of, that's the hook and the appeal of this model is that it gives you just the right amount of change to make you think you're changing. Um, so you feel validated. You feel connected. You feel listened to. These are very good things in and of themselves, but at the wrong time can be very, almost like a weapon uh, against you. Uh, And so, but it's so insidious and silent, so you don't know. And so what I found over the years of training was, and it wasn't until I had a moment, and I I don't know if I've told you this story, but I think your listeners would find this interesting, is um, I had a moment with a client, uh, a very pathetic moment, where (laughs) I had uh, nodding off a little bit in the psychotherapy session. So this is a horrible sin. And, uh, you know, I did the best to fake it and uh, try to make it through. And what's interesting was you could really, what I learned was you could do a lot of behavioral stuff that makes it look like you care about somebody and that you're listening to them. So you can do a bunch of nods and, wow, hmm, yeah, well, so, oh, and then reframe and give it back to them, which I almost got to the place where, oh my gosh, I cannot listen and still regurgitate what you said. That's an amazing thing to realize, by the way. And, uh, so I was doing this for, and I was, I was hanging in there and they didn't know I was actually losing it consciousness in a way. And at the end of the session, this gal says, Dr. Fleming, that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> and I, and I stopped at this sort of ethical fork at the road and I sat there and I said, oh crap, what do I do? Do I take the freebie and run or do I really unplug the machine when I don't even have to? And I knew this was the beginning of something big if I could just do it right. And I, I also, of course, risked a lot of complaints, of course, that could be filed against me. But I ended up kind of saying, hey, you know what? Thank you. Uh, but let's get our benchmarks right. Albert Einstein's brilliant. Um, I'm not, <laughs> especially in the moment you've just experienced in 45, 50 minutes. Uh, and she's looked perplexed. And, you know, and I said, well, let me tell you what exactly happened. I said, I was tired, got burned out. You were my last folk person of the day. And instead of being honorable with you, I stayed in the moment and went through it. I found the conversation boring. I didn't find it engaging to me, my ego. Uh, And because I didn't have the balls to tell you that, I faked it. And look, I even got a comment like, brilliant. Isn't that interesting? So here's what we're going to do. Not only are you not going to pay me, I'm going to take my checkbook out and give you that hourly rate back because I robbed you of an hour uh, in many ways that you don't even know. And so she sat there in silence and then the tears started coming down and it was like, oh gosh, I hurt her. And um, she looked at me and she said, doc, she said, thank you. And I said, thank you. And she goes, I just realized I give compliments like that to people, especially men, when I don't even believe them. I go, let me get this straight. You gave out something you don't believe. I did behaviors that aren't authentic. And here we are in a collusion of sorts that we would never have gotten to unless we had a three, four, five standard deviation deviation of truth out there on the bell curve that we had to get out there. And whether it was me that started or you, doesn't matter. Here we are in this unbelievable moment of brilliance and disconnection (laughs) somehow. Um, And she, she said, and I said, listen, here's the deal. So you, you got that check, or if you think you're up for this wild type of talking, you know, that needs ego solidness, you can't have a fragility to do some of this. Um, are you game? And she said, am I game? Sign me up. Let's do this. And it was remarkable. She left the office and I sat there staring out the window thinking, I realized that 
I don't, I'm not quite sure if the model of psychotherapy contains this type of dialogue. Some would argue, and I'd get a whole bunch of emails after this saying, oh, wait, yes, you can, you can do that. Not, I, I don't think it's reliable enough of a stopgate to make this stuff happen because most of the ethics codes in our field are about whether you sleep with a patient or whether you're doing some horrible boundary violation and make sure you don't do those, which are horrible to people. But I'm not quite sure there's a lot written on the linguistic half-truths and this type of distortion of ego in the moment of trying to help somebody. I'm not quite sure there's a lot written on that. I mean, a lot of us, I mean, I've been around water coolers with other shrinks and a lot of us talk like this and it's like, hmm, but we're not getting caught, right? Uh, so I just thought that was the moment I realized I need a whole nother company. And I, I, I backed out, started Gray Matters International, which at the time was not as much heavy duty neuroscience because we were still learning about decision making and neuroscience technologies and such. But I knew the road. I knew the road had to be a very bold one. And I knew I wasn't just going to be a coachy person. I find, I find that field also full of some incomplete truths of just making everything motivational based and goal setting and rah, rah, rah. So I knew I had a niche somewhere between these two fields that I think this is how we connected. Entrepreneurs would be interested in because it, they need to get to this level of thinking behind the thinking. Wow. You know, all I kept on thinking about when you're telling me that story are relationships. You know, when a guy is just nodding their head saying, yes, dear, yes, dear, but not listening. And what kind of relationship? I, I mean, this is not the topic of the discussion, but that's that's just what's been ringing in my ears when you're telling me the story. It's a fascinating story. So is that the, the catalyst for your shift from neuroscience to coaching? Well, uh, it was it was the catalyst from psychotherapy to the default, whatever it was. At the time, coaching was just starting but I'd been around some of the executive coaches and I knew, and I was doing work with executives in psychotherapy. So the folks that were derailed at risk of burnout, um, had private issues like their marriage or family issues blowing up in their face, addictions. Uh, they were coming into the psychotherapeutic door. But when I was listening to their story, I realized they had hired executive coaches. They'd gone to shrinks. They'd gone to rehabs. They've gone to all these helpers. And they, they were giving me so much great information and they needed something else. And um, so, yeah, this was the catalyst to jump ship. I still was ill-defined. I still didn't know what this Gray Matters road was going to look like. But I started hanging out more with some of the renegades and the what I call the land of misfit toys kind of guys that were in labs doing really fascinating things with neurotechnologies and realizing, wow, if I just got my ego out of the way and let some of these machines and technologies do the work so much better, I didn't need to be Fraser Crane. I didn't need to be the guy that's going to be, no, 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 let me tell you how things need to be. No, I didn't have to do that. I could actually help facilitate change. And what I realized was in the advent of not introducing neuroscience into my company, it also helped me get myself out of the way of myself, which is really, uh, you know, maybe, you, <laughs> maybe you're my shrink today and I'm doing a lot more therapy here uh, on me than I really uh, should be doing. But there, when you're in a doctor role, healing role, you just got to watch it. Anybody that's helping someone else and paying money and retainers for you to come in to be an expert, you, you can be misused. And I think some of the spiritual work of my background has taught me that, getting into the philosophers and the mystics and some of the people that, uh, I mean, the guy that actually wrote the foreword to my first book was Tom Morris, who is a um, world-class philosopher who wrote uh, If Aristotle Ran General Motors. I don't know if you knew that book from years ago. And he's a great philosopher. And so I was always hanging out with these type of thinkers. And I knew that we had an error in this field, not just on the methodologies, but in the thinking itself. Let me ask you a quick question. And then I want to, you mentioned gray matters and 
I want to talk about that. I was going to ask you later, but I'll, I'll ask you in a second. But your transition, how much was it? What percentage or how much was it? Hey, you know, I really want to help people do something different. Or you know what? There's a niche here that I can get into. How much was business and how much was altruistic? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I did not realize I created a business until just <laughs> just as I looked over my shoulder later. I went in it purely for passion. And, uh, and well, arguably, just when you're brought to your knees, and you, we all know this, entrepreneurs know this from success-failure cycles, when you just have hit every wall possible and there's nothing else to do, you just desperately grab the next thing that you go, well, this, why not? And I knew pretty early on that the psychotherapy world was not going to be for me, but heck, I spent all this training and money and to get all the way through all these degrees. And I did a postdoc residency and all this. And you get to this place where you're like almost a moment of despair. You're like, well, then what the hell am I going to do with all this? And that's, what's really fascinating was, and everybody that I look up to as gurus in my field will tell you, yeah, you get the PhD. And you learn the information, and then your real trick is unlearning everything. Mm. And that's, the, that's really what I started learning. And then when I started unlearning the learning, I looked over my shoulder and was surprised that I had a business through it, and that it was actually exponentially bigger than anything I could do in the psychotherapy world. And so it just taught me, wow, so if you do remove yourself, and you do, do, and you do look at something fully and entirely for the beloved in front of you, whatever that is and what they need— it takes care of itself. It's wild. I love that nugget. Learn to unlearn. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very fascinating thing because what we see in neuroscience research is there's a corollary to this, right? So uh, in some of the research done in, um, at Northwestern, I believe, uh, on insight, because insight and eurekas and ahas, if you really think about it, this is the gasoline of most entrepreneurial inventions and ideas is it's not just the hard work ethic. Yes, that's given. That's awesome. Um, but there's this holy crap moment, boom, where it's like something hits you and a new way of looking at an old problem happens. Well, what have we done for years? We've done these brainstorming sessions. We've done all these horseshit kind of ways of trying to just use first order models to get a second order outcome. And what we, when we look at the neuroscience research on an insight, a eureka of that second order change moment, what we find is it's very interesting. It's not that you're doing something. It's that you're not doing something. <laughs> and what happens is you're inhibiting the desire to do something, right? So this declarative knowledge part of your brain is being suppressed by the inhibition basis on the right prefrontal. And that's pushing it down. And with the people that are making it, they're actually, in a way that like we just talked about, they're unlearning learning. They are getting into a moment where they are allowing something to emerge. And we see this in another study, too. Um, there was a fascinating, I don't know the, when, it was, when it came out, but I've used this in my talks before. But there was, there was a study done out in one of the U, uh, University of California schools um, where they took these people in a, in a room and they were showing, you know, colors on a screen. And all the people in the room, there were all these uh, people that had to just name the color. And there was a confederate in the room that would purposely yell the opposite color. So there, you know, yellow would be on the screen and someone hit and this person would yell blue, you know, and, and the people around like, what the hell's going on? That's crazy. What? So reality testing is starting to get, is starting to get attacked uh, in a very bold way. And so that what they did was they, one group was going through this sort of dissonance making experience and another group didn't have that. They were just naming blue, yellow, green, blah, 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 blah. Then they gave them a word association test. 
which is a wonderful way of looking at what kind of layers of subconscious activity you can access, right? And so the word blue would be on that page. And the group that just had just normal telling of the colors would say ocean, sky. Okay. The group that was having the constant attacks on such violations of reality would say things like next to blue, Miles Davis, you know, jazz. It's fascinating to me. And clearly, if you were going to do some type of analysis linguistically on this, some words are more deep in their meaning than others that are more, they're more, if you had to approximately like kind of put it on a graph, we're distant in, you know, we're still related, but they weren't just the immediate uh, kind of common sense kind of stuff. And what they realized was maybe it takes way more than brainstorming. Maybe it takes this level of reality violation <laughs> that in our cultures we know now we can't seem to tolerate because everything's going to lay, everyone's going to label you with some political thing or meaning. But can we sit inside this unbelievable level of strong dissonance in love, in acceptance, in what? So we can allow this emergent consciousness to come and we can get through the first barrier over the hill into a true wisdom nugget. See, wisdom is not knowledge and knowledge is not information. These are all different constructs and they're not just Mr. Potato Head things you can just mix around. They have radically different outcomes. And we are at a place in our culture and our businesses where you need, typically when you have an intractable problem, wisdom, not uh, a mere Google search factoid. Wisdom comes from within and it's a tapping into the consciousness of all there is that there is. Creativity comes from that uh, place, which it's just brilliant. So gray matters. What does it mean? Is it related to gray matter? Because I think there's, is it a double, a triple entendre? What, 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 what are we talking about here? It's interesting. This is my own little pride piece. I love this because someone told me one day that, hey, you know, you stole the name from Breaking Bad. I guess there's gray matters is from that. I don't know. I, I'm not a Breaking Bad guy, but I guess it, it, there's somebody with that company name there. Uh, but I promise you I didn't. I had this incorporated before that show came out. Anyways, um, yeah, so gray matters is a double, uh, you know, entendre where it's, yes, clearly the neuroscience illusion of the brain. But the real secret sauce and why I really like the name was in the decision-making illusion, right? So gray does matter when making decisions. So, so much of my work now is in decision-making sciences, right? So the idea is, I mean, so many people are always coming to me going, well, what do I do, doc? What do I do? What do I do? And in that power-seated kind of Fraser Crane role, I could whip off anything BS it and make it look right. I mean, that's just, that's part of the transfixing nature of a lot of shrinks. They used to be, they use their tone of their voice, the neurolinguistic programming. You can make shit sound like gold. And, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so what I realized was, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get into the love of dissonance. I want to get into getting my clients to not resolve it prematurely because Otherwise, you miss out on the Miles Davis blue kind of connections that if you're and if you're missing it out on those little one word nuggets, imagine what we're missing conceptually on bigger problems to solve. That's my whole point. So Gray Matters was really born out of this idea of going, wow, well, we can't run 20,000 experiments like that on every little keyword of your life that you wanted to look at differently. So let's get at neural network change. Let's see if we can create, use neurotechnology to work from the brainstem up to the top of the cortex here to create consciousness-based shifts. We're not just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic and calling it change. 
How much does NLP get into the game? Because Tony Robbins is big in NLP and there's a lot of other coaches. Yeah. What do you think of NLP? Yeah, great question. Um, not a fan of it. Um, and again, it's only because it's kind of like if you have a filet mignon and someone says, hey, here's a little uh, you know, McDonald's cheeseburger. What do you say? Like, why would I trade you for that? Like, I, I got filet mignon. Like, and what I mean by that is when you're working with some of these guys in labs that I work with who have created devices that have literally, we can see it on fMRI scans, change consciousness. Why would you work with mere word changes? Because the idea is, in my opinion, when NLP can be highly misused, you can't misuse the neuroception. You're the own intelligence of your central nervous system. I mean, it will do what it needs to do, especially when I've gotten PTSD guys and, uh, you know, whether it's a vet from Afghanistan or an executive in burnout, they actually have the very same brain in terms of neurophysiology. It's very interesting. Wow. Um, but I wouldn't do NLP with some of these guys. They need literally inside out change, not outside in change. They don't need to kind of influence and market people differently and get an outcome. No, they need radically their fight, flight, free circuitry to shift. And I would argue most of us do. And we live, whether it's a marriage, whether it's in a boardroom, we live in constant fight, flight, free states that where we end up actually rationalizing later. And there's a lot of great neuroscience on this around um, whether we actually have rational thought, this Aristotelian notion of being the sine qua non of everything, or if it's actually more rationalizations. And I think a lot of it is. Uh, there's self-deception inherent in, in us all. I think that's the, another key area of gray matters is we go after a lot of what you don't know you don't know, which is, I think, as entrepreneurs listening, that's the black swan stuff that'll get you if you're not, if you're really not. And I can't say we predict everything. We're not Jesus Christ. We can't walk on water. But we can at least get in there and go, we can, we can really tinker with and expand, you know, at least get into that bandwidth way more than most people. Wow. So interesting. So you're all about CEOs, entrepreneurs, and the challenges that we face in bringing up a business. So what I'd like to do is break down a few key concerns in that area, uh, mostly in success mentality, required sacrifice, and stress. So you've said that some of the most successful business leaders in the world would trade in their success in a heartbeat. Trade it in for what and why? Uh, that's a great question. And I, let me clarify that. I, I, I don't think they would trade it in in the beginning of the hedonic treadmill journey. <laughs> mm. Right. We all know that concept from behavioral economics. That right? first few, the first few years of. Yeah. Of it's the, like, nah. this, yeah. <laughs> no, I'll take the, to... I'll take I'll take the yacht with the gals. Yeah. And that, yeah, yeah, no problem. Why don't you take yeah. your gray matters BS and shove it up your, you know. A exactly. Um, so and, and there is something to be said. Right. We see it in addiction world when people tell you, you know, you have to be in your bottom for. That's why I love the addicts. I love them because they teach us humility. And what I find is that we are all a part of that circuitry, wh whether we like it or not. And cocaine is very similar in what it's doing as much on the brain as what is our cell phones every day. All right. Mm. In terms of our hyperstimulation and our desire to be hyperstimulated. Hyper but so to, to answer your question, and I don't, sorry to get on that, but the, it, it does link in, which is people don't trade off success for other things until the hedonic treadmill that they're on their, their calculations of effort to outcome. They're pushing the button and, and on, the, on the treadmill and they can't keep up to get to their norm that they want for pleasure and satisfaction because now you're into the addiction circuitry. So the neural networks that start for success slowly insidiously change through opponent, uh, for what we call the opponent process theory of addiction. It, it, it slowly changes 
to a pleasure-based circuitry. And when that, and you never get a memo, right? you know, the brain doesn't give you like, hey, just so you know, you are moving from, the, no, it just quietly happens because there's a one size fits all output for your brain and it's dopamine, right? So the dopaminergic reward circuitry will, will ding and dong the same way for your achievements and ego-based stuff as much as it does for other things. But what ends up happening is it's, it robs you. So the things like watching a sunset and listening to a beautiful Mahler symphony and, and, and watch and these other more serotonin rich kind of things go away. And you can't seem to get pleasure out of the same things that would innately natural based pleasures. That's when they call me and that's when they're ready to make the trade off. Okay. Is when it's a burning, angsty, existentially pain at the, and they go, you can give me all the money in the world. Doesn't matter something else is going on and they'll take back a great night's sleep. They'll take back the look of their wife in their eyes saying, you're the same, you're a beautiful man that I want to be with, you know, they, where they don't feel like they're just a paycheck for their spouse or their family. They'll take back, you know, all these things that they traded away foolishly early on. They want it back. They, they think this will all give them the good life. And then when they're there, the brain can't tolerate the neurochemistry coordinates of what a good life is. That leads me into exactly what I wanted to ask you next, because you're talking about the trade-off into other aspects of life other than achievement. And so into seven hats, I speak of the holistic entrepreneur, fulfillment and happiness, right? Everybody wants it. But do you think it's possible? You've, you've met with so many entrepreneurs, they, you know, they get to a point where they want to trade everything and they might want to go spend time on their relationships and their health. But do you think it's possible to attain? And if so, how? Yes and no. And this is a disconcerting answer. Um, but I'll, I'll caveat it by saying, if you can buy into this nugget, which is, and I love it, I don't know who said it, but it was said to me at some point or read it, happiness is in the waiting room of happiness. Mm. I love that line because what it's saying is it's there, but it's not through the methods you think. And so the answer is yes, but I don't think people like the nonlinear road towards it. Um, I don't think a lot of my guys that will come in will say, well, wait a minute, like in marriage work. So these CEOs that will come in and they'll have, you know, an issue at home front. You're telling me I've done this, 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 and I have to die to self. And I'm paraphrasing. A lot of them don't use that phrase for this to us to move forward in this barrier in our marriage. I don't have to do that. Exactly. You don't have to. But there's something, this is where virtue, and this is where uh, the higher level of consciousness comes into decision-making. When you're rewarded in, in, in this pigeon pellet kind of way of living, it's very hard to learn these happiness in the waiting room of happiness moments when the brain is saying, wait a minute, A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. We don't have to do this shit over here, uh, Mr. CEO. Why are we doing this? Why are we negotiating? Very, very hard. Now we're into the realm of ego, right? And so can you do it? Absolutely. Is there a cost to it? Hell yeah. Is it a cost on the balance sheet psychologically that these guys don't like? Hell yeah. And so how do you balance these balance sheets uh, that have used different tools to get to the outcome in the bottom line? Very difficult. So are you saying that you may try to take steps in getting a better physique, uh, having a better relationship, take care of your finances, uh, start meditating, doing all of the, the trajectory uh, forms of tasks to get to fulfillment, for instance, but yet not be fulfilled because the most difficult part is finding fulfillment from within? Yes, almost there. Uh, I would say 
Uh, there's a great, let me, there's a great, I'm blanking his name. Uh, he wrote a book, Boomeritis, so someone else could figure out who the author is. He had a phrase called spiritual narcissism. And I love this phrase. And this idea is fascinating that you can seek these fulfillment-based constructs, but from a not so honorable spirit of intention. And so you see this in an extreme version. You see all the soccer moms driving people around, but and they're doing their yogas and they're doing their things every day to fulfill themselves, but they've dropped the ball with their kids. Or they're at the they're at their lunch drinking wine from mid from noon to four eight four PM and they're showing up buzzed, picking up their kid at school. But they did all their self-fulfillment activities during the day. Arguably, is that living well, right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not judging, but I'm saying there's something there where it's, um, the, could, we use it, uh, I'm a Catholic, right? So, so in, the, in the Catholic literature, we'll talk about um, kenosis, which is this construct of self-emptying. And I think you can, you, there, you, in my opinion, there's this self-emptying way of doing the seeking where you take self out of the fulfillment. Because if you look at all the self-help constructs of bettering self-fulfillment, what's the common word of them all? Self, 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 self. Well, adding up all these selves you'd think would be an optimized self, I'm saying, no, it's actually what doesn't happen. That's the problem. Wow. It's it, that topic just probably warrants a, a podcast in itself. Yeah, I think so. That was a long one. <laughs> that was a good one. Um, so as entrepreneurs, you know, kind of continuing on, um, as entrepreneurs, we're always doing our best, uh, I think. And yet, well, some might not be doing their best, but I think overall humans are doing their best. And and yet we don't have 100% control over the results, right? And often, if not most of the time, we don't get what we want. Yeah. And then we stress over it. So what do you think is the healthiest way to respond to this really common situation, especially for entrepreneurs, because we have so many dreams and so many tasks and we're just so motivated. We're the 1%. Yeah. How do we get through that? You know, someone had given me a great formula that I really liked in the therapy world um, that I've used before. That it was this, maybe, I think it's from Choice Theory, from William Glasser's work. Um, unhappiness equals reality minus expectations. I kind of thought that was a cool formula. You equals R minus E. And typically when you're an entrepreneur or someone who's won a lot, who's spun the roulette wheel and a ball seems to hit the number you always want, or, or at least the worldly rewards, your tendency or the brain's tendency is to go after the R in the equation, uh, in this sort of godlike complex to change R. And you do it in your company. It's your reality. So why not just change the R in everywhere other, or other parts of your life? So U equals R minus E. So if you go into the... First of all, you want R and E, obviously, if you want unhappiness, zero, you want to have got to be the same number. And so we'd go first into the R to try to change it, hitting difficult walls, of course. And this is where we're also linking into this selflessness construct we just were talking about. It is very hard to get an executive to back off from the hitting the R like a bumper car and to go into the door of E because it feels like losing. And we know there's loss aversion, right? We know that that construct of the brain is very, very real. And it seems like a loss to go in there and just change an expectation to match reality. That seems like a door number two kind of push from someone like me. And they, and they do. They, they're like, well, you're, you're a quack, doc. What are you talking about? You're going to tell me to do this shit? What do you mean? And um, it's like, great. Why don't you do this? And I have this quote I, I use with my clients. I can help you or I can help you have the right problems. So which one would you like? 
And that construct really helps people because eventually they'll go back into that formula and go, okay, I got it. Like the law of gravity, this pen will always hit the floor, okay? A high-achieving entrepreneur, I don't care if they like it or not, it's going to happen that way. It's the law of gravity. And there's a bunch of relationship physics that are similar to that. And I think one of the hardest things for people is to start aligning with that when, in certain ways, at certain times, they've almost made the law of gravity go the other way and make the impossible happen. Um, That's why I always say, be careful of your success, because you may generalize it to other realms that shouldn't be generalized to. Steve Jobs had that problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So given that, do you think that CEOs and entrepreneurs are positioned to face the challenges of running a business? And if not, wow. what's, what's the gap that you've seen with your clients? See, it's great. That's a great question. Um, you know, it depends, you know, um, let's go back and as we, as in the scientist in me is always operationally defining things. Let's, let's go slow down and say, who is an entrepreneur? What is a business? Right. Because like for me and just in my business as an entrepreneur, I was completely ill fit <laughs> and I had all the training, um, <laughs> But that brokenness was exactly what I needed from a humility side to start it because I wouldn't be able to do these solutions without the brokenness leading me, right? I mean, young Carl Jung would call it the wounded healer is the exact thing we need. So it's to answer your question, yeah, they, they can and they do have everything if they look at all the corners in their room that they didn't look at. The, you know, the, oh gosh, don't show this. I can't show people this. No, that's actually the beautiful stuff. That's actually, this is the gold. And very hard to get them to get into that kind of dialogue. So gaps like vulnerability, for instance. Like vulnerability and the shaming of certain things and inadequacy, especially for the male entrepreneurs from a, a stereotypical standpoint. Very, very big. For sure. You know, and I think everything changed for me as an entrepreneur. When mm-hmm. I started becoming more more vulnerable, when I started becoming more open, when I started yeah. looking within and understanding that I'm flawed yeah. uh, by nature, yeah. everything changed. Because as a first time entrepreneur, I thought I knew everything. I thought that success is just in- inevitable, that I'm controlling the universe. And then little by little, spirituality kicks in and you're starting to understand the real laws of nature rather yeah. than what's perceived by the ego. That's really interesting. So... You know, one of the the aspects of success in general, but especially for business, is consistency and yeah. habits. What's your take on this crucial factor uh, to entrepreneurial success? Mm, habits. Oh yeah, torn on it. Uh, and you can see me throwing. Oh, curveballs. that's an interesting one. Well, I'm, I'm you know throwing curveballs and everything because when you start when you start holding things up to the light and turning it around to all angles, you see all the colors. It's not just see. We live in a culture where everybody's reductionistic. Are you on board or off? Are you this? Or yeah. Are you for this? Or, uh, I don't know. Uh, sometimes there's thing called complexity. I can't uh, nuance context. Do I have to answer? You know, and if you shut your mouth and you don't say anything, well, then you're hmm, you're resistant. I wonder why you're not buying in. No, that's actually good sometimes. I mean, I teach my clients say, I don't know more. It's a great thing to say when it's true. You don't know, you know. So to answer your question with habit change, the brain makes, again, I said this earlier, one size fits all. It Practice makes perfect. So Habits, you can practice and it can, re- you can produce a habit, but what if it's the wrong habit, but in the beginning it looked like one. And so, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, I'm a believer of it, but I'm more of a believer of making sure you know what you're habit making <laughs> and what the inadvertent consequences of that are. And I don't think we, we look at that. So it's the habits that work rather than just creating habits in your life. Yeah. Awesome. And so, you know, obviously 
stress is a huge issue. We started touching upon that. Where does it come from? Um, you know, you mentioned in one of your talks, three aspects to, to stress. I'd love to, to let the seven hatters know a little bit about that. Cause I thought it was yeah, so my, interesting. My, my thoughts on stress are, um, I'm probably a little more of a, uh, I, I, this is a big, well, this is a big area, right? Cause we know there's psychoneuroimmunological bent detriments to this stuff. And yet there's also benefits of the right amount of stress. We don't talk a lot about that. The bell curve. The bell curve, right? And the yep. stress element. I mean, they're, 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 to get out of bed with that kind of push and that little bit of the uh, feeling is good. Um, but Robert Sapolsky, a great neurobiologist at Stanford, said something, or he wrote a book that I loved, um, uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Love mm. this title, right? Um, and it was fascinating to get into the book and read it because the idea was, a zebra doesn't get an ulcer, and arguably the extension being doesn't experience the stress we experience because they're either eaten on a savanna or they run away uh, when they're right. It's one or the other. What's happened here in our lives has been that this literal, you know, fight, flight, freeze circuitry in the amygdala area over here in the temporal lobes behind it in the mesolimbic area is that it's always on, right? Because literal life death situations aren't really what's making it go on much anymore in our human brains it's informational urgency it's boundarylessness it's constantness of communication expectations it's that type of feeling so it's on and that switch gets on it doesn't shut off what i find fascinating about that is that and another guy had written a book that had a great title that, I, and I, that said, your survival instincts are killing you. And I think that's a great phrase because that's exactly what's happening is this was meant to be a survival instinct, like yep. the first zebra. It's not doing that anymore. It's now preference-based kind of stuff. I should be ex- responding to you. I should be. In the absence of, you know, of reasonability, I'm, I'm going to have now stress. Or if I say no to you. It's like there's something wrong with the universe. And it's like, what? Like, I got to teach boundaries all over again to people. And and that's the other thing. Teaching boundaries to an entrepreneur is challenging because it's got consequences. You know, if you're trying to push forward and you're trying to do X, Y, Z, and you know a lot's on the line and everyone's working 80 hours a week to get this startup up and going, boundaries, Doc, up yours. They ain't, we're ain't gonna, we have no boundaries right now. Everything's, it's all balls to the wall, hands on deck. Okay, but- just know that there's going to be inadvertent consequences somewhere. And so if everything matters all the time, then nothing matters eventually. Well, gray matters. But, no, gray matters. but, but more importantly, it, it leads to helpless, helplessness because we right. don't even realize, right, how much stress we're under. That's and right. your brain goes on autopilot. You're really burning out inside. That's right. But, and then you got to get stuck uh, and, and you, you can't move because of that, that much stress. So is it fair to say, because I've been hearing this all my life and I just, I need to, to get this out. You need, yeah. you, need to, you need to clear this one out for me. <laughs> all right. They say, whoever they are, you can't distinguish the stressor of a lion trying to eat us versus failing to put a cheese on a cheeseburger that someone just ordered. Is that true? Oh, great. great. Yeah. See, I, um, I would say, and again, my, this is my take, um, that because... Here's how the brain works. It compares, it makes prediction ratios, right? Expectation to what it knows. So it's always using mental models for what it knows. And then it then it measures in nanoseconds the deviation from that, right? So this is how we develop OCD and develop all these, because we're constantly looking at discrepancies. And then the idea is it's supposed to be a fluid notation and then it's supposed to move on. And 
what happens is any type of deviation, so this is my answer, whether it's cheese or life or death, what ends up happening, and we don't know why some brains will make the ratio the same as cancer and the cheese, you know, like, and and if it's just predispositions, if we're making more adrenaline, if we've, you know, if somebody had a trauma with cheese <laughs> in their life that makes it equated in some way, but it's so impossible to predict which brain will do that. But eventually in this whole, you know, as we've talking today, blessing curse kind of practice makes perfect. It's going to eventually start making everything the same stress response. And that's, my, my answer on it is that, yes, uh, I think we end up kind of using psychotherapy and other coaching and self-help stuff to say, now, now the cheese is irrational to have that type of expectation <laughs> and you should need to be doing deep breathing. And, th- and then that actually makes the brain get even more angry, more stressful. And so I look at it as more, and that's why I like the neurotechnology solution. I could give a shit if you're having a cheese issue or a life or death issue, sit in the chair, let's get the brain balanced so it can recalibrate its assessment of these deviations so it actually matches reality when it does it. That's what I think you need to do. I don't, I'm not a big believer in applying cognitive behavioral therapy to absolutely everything. It's just not going to work. I don't know about you, Doc, but who are you to tell me my cheeseburger should come without cheese, right? That motherfucker was- my cheese? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so since your brain does go on autopilot and it's almost, it might be even too late by the time you realize it, that, you, that you're burnt out. Yes. Why do you why do you get stuck? Why why is it that you become helpless in terms of not being able to deal with the stress but not being able to do anything about it? So that's that's a great question. I love that question because again, we're going to go to Seligman's research, Martin Seligman, Seligman's research for this on learned helplessness. If you look at the characteristic that's actually built into how you create learned helplessness, it is the same thing that is actually helped an entrepreneur to become successful. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, And this is why this is difficult for people to solve. When Seligman had done those research studies on the construct of learned helplessness, uh, and again, pardon me, everybody, if I'm paraphrasing this study wrong, but the idea was they were shocking these rats and um, the rat could not figure out the pattern of the shocks. Very random, very intermittent reinforcement kind of stuff. And what happened was eventually the rat just said, fuck it, and just sat there and said, doesn't matter what I do. And it's true. In a way, he couldn't figure out the pattern, so it didn't matter. Um, even though there may have been a door right there for the rat to go through to get out of it, they couldn't perceptually see the escape hatch. And so, so many sensory systems had shut down, right? What is the actual principle at play there? Well, intermittent reinforcement. Randomness. Our, our friend and our enemy. And what's happened is, and this is the same principle that Vegas is built on when you pull a lever in a slot machine, right? Yep. And some, you can't, you can't predict it, right? So for some people, it's, it's learned helplessness. For other people, it's a fucking big jackpot. Excuse my French. Um, so the idea is, whew, how can we predict how to leverage randomness for our favor? And how do we know where that tipping point is where it will destroy us? Don't have an answer. So that lady in, in Vegas with the slot machines, she's just helpless and can't move because she doesn't know what the, uh, what the outcome is going to be? Yes, at this time, whatever this mysterious time point is, but she's not here when, or, the, or these other people aren't here when they've used mastery to win and the dopamine says it works and it floods your neuron, it floods your bloodstream with dopamine. So you don't know when dopamine becomes your enemy. You don't know when it betrays you like Napoleon. We don't know that. That's the problem with flooding your bloodstream with dopamine after a while is 
it, it's your best friend one day, it's your learned helplessness maker the next. I remember one analogy. It was there was a study done, in, and I don't know if this is a real study, but I heard it from one of the gurus out there, one of the coaches, uh, years back, where they had a jar with these bugs that were jumping out, and they just kept on jumping out of the jar and jumping out of the jar, and then all of a sudden, the scientists put the lid on the jar, and the bugs kept on jumping in the same way, but they kept on hitting their head against yeah. the the lid, and so after a while, the bugs were jumping <clears throat> to a certain point. Mm-hmm. So what the scientists did, they, they took the lid off, and guess what? The bugs did not jump further than where they were getting hurt. Interesting. And that's, an, you know, to me, that and the, and the rat example, it's a great analogy for entrepreneurs, you know, who get hit on their head yeah. over and over and over again, and then decide that, you know, I'm not gonna put in more effort than what it takes because I've been hit so many times. That's a great, that's a, I like that. I'll have to look at that study. Um, and, and what I, the dovetail on that, you know, we talk about nature, nurture, right. And there's a big argument of all that. Gosh, over the years, especially with some of these breakthroughs I've seen with people that never were supposed to change, right. Where the nature card was supposed to be the dominant one. I'm just a a believer now in the environment being the more critical factor. And we see it in behavioral genetics, right. Where we can change DNA that we thought was permanent, um, and neuroplasticity, right. So you're right. This environment framework, whether it's the top of a jar, whether it's your your learning, uh, Mm -hmm. it colors your expectations, your decision-making so implicitly. And that's why I think you almost have to take an entrepreneur who's maybe demonstrating this bias. And if you just coach them, I'm not quite sure they're going to go over that line in the jar. It's a, what I've realized is it's a very um, not one-to-one correlation. Like, where for every, you know, if you could measure barrier strength of an invisible wall to effort to overcome it, I don't think it's one-to-one. It's like seven-to-one. Like you actually have to do something so radically different just to get a notch up out of that line that you that you never thought you could change. I think that's one of the hardest things to teach an entrepreneur because everything is like, when I do this, I get this. When I do this, I get this. I get this. They have this ladder feeling. And then when you hit that and we call this a first to second order change moment. When you hit a first to second order quantum change moment needed, you're, you know, to the man with a hammer, the world's a nail. You can't use a hammer anymore. It's something radically different. And this is the moment where Gray Matters comes in and adds most value is when all these other efforts of success hasn't worked. And people call me and go, now what, man? You must have some special shit going on in that lab <laughs> because we need something. And it's like, yeah, we do. we got to change the way your brain thinks about thinking. It's a metacognitive change. It's a behind the scenes change. It is, you don't, well, as our my tagline in my company says, we change change. That's what we do. I love that. And I, I've seen it over and over again, uh, every time we speak. So Dr. Fleming, ready for some self-reflection? Uh-oh, bring it on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on this podcast, one of the most valuable segments has been when I asked my guests, who did you have to stop being mm. and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? Well, I'm going to use a story from my wife to answer this question because she taught me this. We were at a date night one day, one night, and it was early on. And, and I think I've kind of said it in a different way early on in this talk, but I'm going to wrap it up with this fun story. And uh, it, it, I thought the date night was going good, but apparently it wasn't. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And we've all been on those where we go, oh, gosh, I just want to go home right now, you know. Uh, (laughs) But she said something very interesting at the end. And she said to me, 
hey, when you stop being Dr. Fleming and can figure out who Kevin is, I'm game and I'm ready. And I actually looked at her and I said, I don't know. Wow. It was an unbelievable act of kind of like nakedness of just sitting there going, I don't know how to do anything else. Like, this is just what I know. And yet she was seeing a whole nother being that I had never seen within myself. And I, and when I compared to whatever that being was to what I was trained and reinforced by, I thought it was a hands down, no comparison deal. Like just be the expert, be the doctor, be the one that'll help you through all your shit and your trauma. Right. I mean, in that isn't that what we're here for? Like helping each other. And like, I had all these rationalizations and it was the same thing that I was rewarded in. That was the thing that I needed to let go of. And I think, I think that's the key, whether it's in marriage or in company success or whatever, we we entwine with a goal or a person or a body or an entity that is designed perfectly to show what we can't do. And yet that's the moment of redemption. And that's the beginning of the very first part of change that needs to happen. I am so excited for the seven hatters to listen to this episode <laughs> because I got so much out of it. Um, I don't know where to send you a check for this therapy session, but <laughs> and likewise, but I will, you're my shrink for a good chunk of this too. I, I, I will definitely send you a nice, nice uh, size check because you're worth it. So tell the seven hatters uh, the latest you've been up to, what's going on with Gray Matters, where they can reach you. You know, yeah. what can you do to help them? Yeah. Uh, Definitely. Uh, Gray Matters is really on a good growth curve right now. I'm currently working. Um, I've been uh, partnering now with, uh, with an assessment company, uh, just starting the development phase to create some Gray Matters IP around the construct of love and the idea of how we create this more kenosis type love that's greater than any leadership competency, that's greater than even just love as a business strategy or however people talk about that today. But an actual sense of the, the stuff we've been talking today, imagine if we could measure in a leader the conversion of heart factor, the actual part that is the space in between everything else they've learned and trained. And you know, if we could measure that self-deceptive piece, that missing piece, but is the actual connector between where they are and how to get out of that jar with the flies, right? We're going to try to go after that. We're going to try to create an assessment tool that can look at what we believe is an actual construct of love. And um, which you don't see a lot in the business tests and assessment tools, and especially not at the mystical level. Very difficult. We're going to try to actually uh, uh, operationalize this. So this is a big project that I'm in now. I'm starting to work on this. Um, and yeah, I mean, they could find they could find me graymattersintl.com, G-R-U-I-M-A-T-T-E-R-S-I-N-T-L.com. Uh, email contact forms are there. I'm pretty responsive and quick. Um, shoot that over and uh, love to get in a dialogue. Absolutely. And I'll, in the show notes, I'll put your LinkedIn um, address and everything else. So they cool. will connect with you. And I hope to do something with you in the future because yeah. you're just awesome. Uh, I really vibe with what you have to offer. You're not just a shrink. You're the doc uh, to me. Thanks, and, uh, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. This is a blast. Thanks, man. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Fleming. Let's end today with a segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. I have to be honest, I don't even know where to start dissecting the wisdom and insight the doc just shared with us. He captivated us with his story nodding off in one of his psychotherapy sessions, then challenged us to get through the first barrier over the hill by realizing that wisdom is not knowledge and knowledge is not information. There are different constructs that have radically different outcomes, and we need to stop searching Google for wisdom. Larry Page and Sergey Brin didn't put it in there, I assure you. 
Then the journey continues as we come to find out that happiness is in the waiting room of happiness and that adding all the selves in our self-improvement journey might not have optimized ourself at all. And that was eye-opening for me. Only then did we come to find out that there is a happiness-unhappiness formula whereby happiness is affected greatly by our expectations and our reality. And don't forget to check your ego by holding things up to the light and turning them around to all the angles so that you can see all the colors, not just what culturally everyone expects you to see. And that was an aha moment for me. But I have to say that the story of Doc's first date really hit home for me. I too had the same experience on my first date with Allah, with whom we just celebrated 17 years of marriage. On our first date, I showed up as the entrepreneur, the dreamer, the guy with all the creative ideas, and I didn't hold back. The entire conversation revolved around my entrepreneurial ideas and grand visions of what the future would hold. Needless to say, Allah was not impressed. In fact, she just thought I was arrogant, and like the doc, I would have bet anyone a donut that the date was going just well. It wasn't until our second date that I stepped back and unknowingly exposed the real me that ultimately won her heart. As Doc's wife, Allah saw a whole other being that I had never seen in myself, and I'm glad she did. And then the Doc wrapped the whole show up in a bow when he said, The same thing that I was rewarded in that was the thing that I needed to let go of. And I think that's the key, whether it's in marriage or in company success or whatever. We, are, we entwine with a goal or a person or a body or an entity that is designed perfectly to show what we can't do, and yet that's the moment of redemption, and that's the beginning of the very first part of change that needs to happen. I want to thank Dr. Fleming once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.